I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. On this episode, I am joined by the designer, community organizer, and youth worker, Chris Rudd. Chris is currently a professor of community-driven design at the Illinois Institute of Technology's Institute of Design in Chicago, and is the founder of Shy by Design, a Black-owned and people-of-color-led human-centered design firm. The Chicago Reader called Chris the anti-capitalist face of design, as his work focuses on creating equity, dismantling racism, and promoting anti-racist design systems. In this episode, I was interested in talking to Chris about what anti-racism in design looks like in practice. We begin this conversation talking about his background as a community organizer and youth worker and how he was introduced to design in that setting. We talk about his early excitement around things like design thinking, participatory design, and co-design methodologies, and how he grew disenchanted with many of them. And then, of course, we talk about how design promotes racism and what it means to be an anti-racist post-capitalist designer within these existing power structures. It is a fascinating conversation. The way Chris thinks about these things, I think, uh, is so, so interesting. And so I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you like the show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface and you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details to sign up and to help support the show. Thank you for listening. And here is my conversation with Chris Rudd. sort of career trajectory is interesting to me your your early career and sort of the core of a lot of your work is is rooted in community organizing and youth development and i'm i'm wondering if to sort of begin and frame the conversation if you could talk a little bit about how you got into that line of work a little bit about you know kind of what you were interested in when you were a teenager, kind of what kind of things you were doing and how how uh, community organizing became a, a central part of your life. Sure. Um, so both my parents were were activists in their own rights and my dad and the labor movement, primarily my mom and community organizing primarily. And so it's a environmental culture that I grew up in um, and that I would say I adopted as my own in my teenage years. Um, and so, you know, organizing at school, organizing in the neighborhood around different issues. And then I got into youth development work um, during college. Uh, I took a class on youth development. I didn't know the nonprofit industry was a thing. I thought people just did this organizing because <laughs> right. they were supposed to. Right. Um, and so then I took that class and uh, introduced me to the nonprofit world. And so then uh, a friend of mine who was working at a place um, asked me to come in and talk with the young people. And that that started my path uh, in youth development. And so can, can you talk a little bit about what post-college, what were you doing immediately? What kind of work were you involved in with, with youth, youth development? Sure. So at that time, um, it was... 
2010, I want to say. It, uh, okay. A kid in Chicago, Darian Albert, had just been um, murdered uh, by some other young people. He was beat to death. It made national news. It was a, mm. it was a big, big thing. Um, it was really tragic. And so the public school system here um, decided to start this initiative called Culture of Calm and a lot of money, a lot of resources to try to help young people who were identified as um, at risk, not just for violence being committed against them, but for them to commit violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they hired an army of uh, folks to, um, you know, support these young people. So I started doing that work around violence prevention uh, on the west side of Chicago. And it was a really great experience, but it didn't quite fit with my philosophy around violence prevention, that it wasn't just about keeping young people busy. You had to divert their their interests and, and mm. find them an alternative purpose um, for their mm-hmm. lives, right? So um, after the funding for that dried up, I ended up um, going to work at another organization that was more focused on youth empowerment. Um, and so that's where I got into the juvenile justice world and started focusing on civic tech. And then is that where the, the sort of design piece of this came in? Cause was it there that you, you developed this app? Was that, right. was that at that? Okay. Could you talk a little bit about that and sort of how this design piece starts to fit into, to this story? Sure. So I was still quite unaware of design. I think I had been sent to like one or two trainings. Um, I thought it was interesting. I said, oh, okay, this is a cool <laughs> way to try to solve solve yeah. issues. Um, and then I was also being introduced to like the civic tech world through mm. um, this organization called Smart Chicago, a, a mentor of mine, Dan O'Neill. And so we started working uh, with the county board president around juvenile justice. And so started to develop, you know, or utilizing these these new frameworks that I'm learning about. Um, with the young people. And so we started using some design tools. We started using participatory action research methods um, to really get the young people to understand the issue and develop their own solutions rather than, you know, the adults trying to say, oh, here's the problem that you all are going through. Um, let, Let me fix it. Coming from a background where you were not really aware of design, working in these nonprofits, you know, kind of thinking about youth empowerment. When you started seeing these design methodologies, what, like, <laughs> what were you thinking? Like, like, were you like, oh, I mean, you said you're like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. Did you see this as a, as a valuable, you know, as a, as a valuable framework in the work that you were doing? Did it, did it sort of immediately make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever you're dealing with, an issue, right? You're, you're trying to figure out the best way to solve it. And so, you know, I started learning some of these design frameworks and methods and, uh, I was like, Oh, that's a much more creative way of making, you know, bullseye, you know, um, uh, positioning. I was like, Oh, that's a much better way of thinking about kind of making decisions than just say, Oh, put a star next to, you know, <laughs> this idea. Got it. Um, yeah especially with young people, right? So like how it, it, it was a, a methodology that really allowed young people's creativity to shine 
rather than what I felt like at the time was my oldness. And I was, I was still young, but you know, we all been, I've been trained in a certain way Mm -hmm. that felt really stale. Mm -hmm. Um, And so design for me felt like a really awesome way to use creativity to help these young, help bring out the creativity of the young people to solve the issues that they, they were working on. The reason I asked that question, and I'll show my bias here, mm-hmm. is, is as somebody who is, you know, very deeply in the design world, sometimes when I hear about, uh, you know, things like design for social good or design, you know, for civic engagement, I, I, m- unfortunately, my default is to roll my eyes and think that this is just some sort of like surface level thing that's you know, vanity project for the designer, or, you know, let's add some like fake creativity to something. <laughs> and, and every time I talk to people who are who don't come from the design world, and they, they, they sort of first encounter these things. More often than not, they don't have that sort of negative reaction that I have. And so I, I, I'm asking, because I'm kind of curious, you know, with your background, do you think you were seeing things do you think you saw value in these systems that maybe the that you know trained designers don't even see? You know, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I was enamored in the beginning, and now. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that too. For sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, and I, I guess I thought about it not as the solution. I thought you right, know it was right. part of the puzzle. Right. Uh, so you know the participatory action research methods far different than not far different there's some some overlap with you know just traditional ethnographic research like it's a method of ethnographic research mm-hmm. but that decenters the designer right. um right so you know i was using it as a way to get my young people who were you know some of them have been formerly incarcerated some had not i had to get them to care about this population right and so, you know, this this type of research method made it possible for them to say, oh, these are humans who who are not bad, right? Things happened. Uh, they may have made a, a decision. Uh, but the main thing was that they were caught. It's not that mm-hmm. they were drastically different than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. as they heard those stories, they said, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, we've all done something that could have ended us you know, and landed us in, in, in a detention center. Right. Uh, there's a lot of circumstances that keep many of us out. Um, but the people who get caught aren't necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they're not worth, worth anything. Can you talk about sort of that early sort of like being enamored with design? Cause you then sort of like follow this, you know, you, um, you, you were a civic innovation fellow at the Stanford D school, which is like, you know, uh, you know, sort of best of the best in thinking about design at these types of, uh, you know, systems. Mm-hmm. How, how did, how did you start to kind of, you know, focus on design as one of the major tools that you would use in this work that you were doing? Um, so I tell people the design world really found me, mm. um, in the sense that, uh, I heard about the Stanford D school. I heard about the civic innovation fellowship program. I said, Oh man, I really want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so happened to like meet the director and, you know, he had heard about the, the app work and he was like, you know, we're developing this civic innovation program. 
um, we know what we want and you kind of fit that, you fit that mold. Um, we would love to support your work um, and then have you, the way that, you know, the fellowship program was kind of built was how do you bring in people doing really cool stuff in the world to help push the D school forward and the D school can help push those, those people and their work forward through design. Um, and so, you know, going out there and then really, really actually learning the methods and frameworks, you know, before that I was, you know, finding something off the internet, <laughs> running, running a thing, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't yeah. really handling, uh, design properly. And so, you know, that was huge for me to understand what design really is. But then also at the same time, that is where I started to see the limits of it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Right. I promise this whole conversation won't be just like going through your background. <laughs> um, sure. I, I do have these kind of bigger questions that I want to ask you, but I'm, I'm interested in this uh, sort of trajectory from being working as a, as an organizer being enamored by design and then running up against the limits of that. I'm, I'm very curious about that, that journey. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's funny when, you know, I was out at the D school, um, my mom, we were on the phone one time and she goes, what do you do? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Every designer gets that question. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you try to figure out how do I explain this to them in a way that they'll understand. And so my response was, um, it feels like I'm being trained to work for rich people, to understand poor people, mm -hmm. to make rich people more rich. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so she said, why do you want to do that? <laughs> and I said, I don't. I have no interest in doing that. But I do see value in the way that they, you know, that design goes about understanding people and trying to meet needs. So, you know, I will, I will absorb all of the, the knowledge, the methods, you know, frameworks, but I'm not going to embrace the purpose mm. um, in which I felt was, you know, to help business. I was right. not going to become that. So you saw, you were like in this system now at this point, you were at Stanford and you, and you, you kind of saw what was going on and you're like, I'm going to stay because I think I can learn these things just so I can then subvert it. Mm -hmm. after. Right. I love that. And, and so, you know, I, I think this is, this speaks to this sort of larger sort of evolution of the thinking around things like design thinking, um, which was, which I think your description of working for rich people to help understand poor people so rich people can get richer is like such a great way to, to kind of describe that actually, you know, ha has now sort of, th there is a bigger discourse around, around the problems of design thinking and, um, you know, people have called it a white supremacy, a, a sort of rebrand of white supremacy um, as sort of this kind of superficial thing of this idea that it it preaches decentering the designer while also, you know, kind of centering the designer. There's a tweet that I saw a long time ago that somebody somebody said design thinking should be called design thanking because you're supposed <laughs> to thank the designer at the end of it. Um, and I, I I don't know what my you know what my question 
is there other than I'm, I'm, I want to know how you think about how you can use these tools while subverting them at the same time. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you think about both being in the system and also sort of subverting the system at the same time? I used to think we could just reconfigure the tools and then therefore create drastically different outcomes, right? That I, if I wasn't following the purpose of design thinking, um, then what I was creating was drastically different than you know what a, a traditional designer using design thinking methodologies was doing. As I continued to practice, um, I realized that that was no longer true. That the tools, the methods, all those things will always bring us to a particular point. Mm. And so design as a field needs new tools to start to move away from um, the, the, you know, what people are saying, like the, the continuation of white supremacy. Right. So, right. so this thing around like anti-racist, if you're not, so I think everything produced in society is racist if it is not actively trying to be anti-racist. So, you know, I think people are getting defensive of this whole thing of like, oh, design thinking or design perpetuates white supremacy. I mean, I don't, I don't say it perpetuates white supremacy. I say it perpetuates racism. And that's because if it's not intentionally being anti-racist, the outcome has to be racist. Let me, let me backtrack for a second. And then I want to come back to this, this idea, but you, for the last couple of years, have been teaching at the Institute of Design at IIT in Chicago. And teaching, you know, just based on on everything we've talked about makes total sense to me that, that you know, that you would be teaching and that seems like a, a space that makes sense. I'm curious how how you bring these ideas in into the classroom and how you bring them into an institution like IIT that has a long history of thinking about design and I don't I'm not asking you to speak negatively about your employer or anything like that but can you can you talk a little bit about um the response when you when you say things like this in a in a classroom so interestingly enough I think you know most students feel my experience is that they're all they believe it uh they they understand not just believe it, they understand it. I totally agree. Do your students come in with a skepticism of design thinking already, lots, do you think? Lots of them. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know about lots, actually. Uh, there's, a good, there's a good core that come in with skepticism. Mm. There, okay. But then there's quite a few that have, well, what they say is like, I've actually never thought about it like this. Right, right. And so... You know, I teach a course called Politics of Design, which is to help, you know, students critically think about design as a process, as a methodology, as a tool, um, but also themselves, that we are not separated from this, right? Mm -hmm. Every Everything about us is embedded in our design process. And so how do you interrogate? So I was some when I say politics of design, it's not about who you vote for. I don't care about that. It's about the worldview you have. Right. Um, and so then once you can understand your worldview, then you can start to understand how it is embedded in your process, how it and sometimes how it should be. So lots of times, you know, designers are 
for justice in a lot of ways. They're for the environment, right? We have <laughs> these things we care about because we're people. But then, so then there's another activity where I have them start to dissect uh, where power lies in the design process or in mm-hmm. a design process. Mm-hmm. And so they have to understand where they actually can control things and where they can't. And then who does control it? Right. Right. So, you know, we can, we can think about, I think the, the, the tension I had initially coming to ID was, I think many of my colleagues still held the notion that design was neutral. (laughs) Um, So that was, that's been a debate, which has been healthy and good. I think more people are starting to understand yeah. That it's not. And so I think that was a tension for me when I first arrived. Plus, you know, the history of um, ideas still very, uh, you know, it was very much focused on business um, right. and, and how can design serve as the pleasure of business. Um, and that was not my intent. Uh, and so I definitely was like, mm, where do I fit in here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to go back to that thing you said about the, the activity you do where you have your students sort of interrogate power or figure out where power is, where, where the power lies in, in the design process, because that was something I was thinking about as I was preparing for this conversation and, and thinking about you and thinking about, you know, the things you've talked about. When I, when I talk about these ideas with my own students, um, you know, they're, they're very much like your students, it sounds like. I mean, they are, they are, they, if they haven't thought about it, they, they are energized by these conversations. A lot of them are aware of design not being neutral, aware of how their ideologies, it's something, they get these ideas uh, very quickly. They're, they're progressive. They want to care about the environment and, and you know dismantling capitalism these are all things that they get excited about and then when it, when then when it comes to their work they feel so powerless mm-hmm. um like yes i am in all these ideas but i'm like i've just i'm like one cog in this i'm just a designer and can you talk a little bit about sort of the levels of power and how you kind of think about that and the outcomes of you know when your students do this of sort of you know, at, at different levels of the design process, how you can start to inject, um, you know, levels of change, whether that's anti-racism, anti-capitalism, you know, whatever. Sure. So, you know, I think the the main revelation that they have when they finish the assignment, so we actually did it last week um, mm-hmm. and that we had our critique and everyone was sharing. And the main thing that students always see is as much as, as much as these processes say, that they are human centered, user centered, <laughs> right? When you yeah. when you diagram it, that is the one group that is always missing each and every time. And and so you know, I tell them, I said, you know, the purpose of the diagram is to show you what is there, but it also shows you what's not. Mm-hmm. And so they're always like, "That's so crazy." Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yep, yeah. <laughs> um, but then so then they start to see. The, the thing that I tell them is that um, when we think about power, we always thinking about, we all, I think people tend to think about it as this kind of abstract thing that exists outside of any control mm-hmm. that you either have it or you don't. And that's just the way it is in that dynamic. But um, what I have them do is start to map out 
what gives them power in each point of the process, right? Whoever has power, you tell me, and then what are the, the mechanisms that enable them to have that power? And that's what we, that's where we as designers have control. Right. Can we start to redesign those mechanisms in a way that distributes power? So can you talk about this specifically in something like co-design, which I've heard you talk about before and you described it as manipulative and that you want to like move <laughs> past this idea of co-design, which I, you know, agree with a hundred percent. And I think it, you know, I think a lot of these, these things about talking about like co-design or participatory design, they do have this sort of, uh, veneer of human centeredness but then it's interesting to hear that your students sort of reveal this in these diagrams how how does this change the position of the designer to truly do collaborative design for example um both both using their power but also distributing power to others at the same time how do you kind of think about that or how does that sort of uh play into practice yeah so i think you know co-design is the best approach we have right now to um, to redistribute power. The the main critique is I think you know a lot of traditional co-design is about just a workshop here and there, which yeah. is really like a feedback loop, right? Uh, right. We created this thing. What do you think? Oh, you want to add a feature to it? Cool. Um, but the the essence of the thing is what we created, which is in the interest of the client. Um, and so, you know, I also run a, a, a firm called Shy by Design, where I always say we, we practice radical co-design, which part of the model is we hire the end users to join the team from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not, they're no longer touch points along the process. They are strictly embedded, deeply embedded throughout the project. And then, you know, so then it's how you give them more power really around decision making. So, you know, I try to teach this at, at ID as well. Is, um, you know, with the co-design class that I teach, we, we try to do projects in that way so they can start to understand, um, you know, the PowerPoints that, that designers have right, which are typically lend, they're lent to us from the client. Um, and so how do we take that power and then give it to the co-designers? And so that can come in the form of, you know, creating the interview protocol, synthesis, uh, the recommendation, the, the concept, right? giving them the power to to develop those and have the final say it's not to say that we we're not involved um because i think you know i i I hear from our co-designers all the time that you know this is a new thing that they're learning and they find value in it so you know that facilitator piece comes into play i think it's also a good tool for us or for the field to try to diversify um so you know when we hire these folks at least 50% uh, after each project say they want to go into design. Oh, uh, wow. And so, you know, and these are young folks of color. These are uh, typically young folks of color um, that we hire. We have um, one parent. We're doing a project in Ohio uh, in the foster care system. And so we have a, um, a, a parent on 
as a co-designer um, who's also a social worker. And so he's like, oh, man, I, every social worker needs to learn this now. I want, you know, he's trying to help his colleagues understand design, but, you know, not taken away from them being social workers, but that it's an extra tool in their tool belt to help their clients. So, you know, it really becomes a powerful way, um, not just to share power, but to diversify the field. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up Shy by Design because I wanted to to talk to you about that. And so I have two questions about that. Firstly, I'll ask these to you at the same time and you can kind of answer them how you want. But can you talk a little bit more specifically about the types of projects you're working on with the studio? What, what type of systems you're working within? What you're kind of being asked to design? But then the the second part is I'm I'm wondering if you talk a little bit more about this idea of sort of inviting everybody in as a co-designer is really interesting to me in that it, um, it almost changes the definition of who the designer is. You know, this, this, uh-huh. this border between designer and client or designer and public starts to dissolve, it sounds like, in this process. Can you talk about that a little bit more as well? In Shabbat Design, we've essentially only worked with like social service organizations, philanthropies, um, and so we're starting to get into to government more. Last year, we worked on uh, a project to rethink what um, community safety looks like in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked on a project to uh, develop a framework on equitable resource allocation in Chicago. Um, we started this project with Ohio around eliminating racism within the foster care system uh worked on a project to help develop an equitable food system here in the Chicago land uh, with you know just really great partners who are interested and want to figure out how do you become anti-racist right and so our work really is focused at the systems level that if you're going to do anti-racist work and so this is the main thing like design thinking can't do it design <laughs> right. thinking right it, right. it, it's point solutions for uh, a challenge. And so what I always tell people, it's good to help you navigate, because it's only at the experience level, right? So it's good to help you navigate the horrible situation, the racist, oppressive situation you're in, but it cannot change the situation, right? It cannot change mm-hmm. the context. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, so our work is always at the systems level Obviously, there's, you know, experience considerations within that. But, um, you know, what what are the new organizations? What are the new policies that need to exist to enable anti-racist outcomes? Um, so, yes, clients come to us saying, oh, we, they they think that it's something very simple that they want. <laughs> right. Always. Yeah, of right. course. But then, you know, like like the point is, like, you're trying to change structural racism that's never going to be simple or easy and then the thing that they learn is that they can't do it by themselves Mm. they then have to become a a conduit in the system whatever ecosystem they're in for that bigger change Mm -hmm. Um, so that's always interesting and then when we bring in uh you know the co-designers the people who are affected personally by the system that the client has created, one, it gives us a whole new level of understanding, right? You know, you, you do right. you yeah. do an interview for an hour, 
that 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 information you're getting is already contained because of the questions you've crafted. Right. Right. right? There's yep. no those. So then, you know, we understand that limit. But then when you bring in the co-designer, even the 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 limits of the question, the the protocol grow because they say, well, actually, you should probably ask about this or we should talk about this. Um, then when you're in the interview and they're there, they get a level of trust that no designer ever can. You know, I've been doing this for a while now. I feel like interviewing is probably my strongest suit <laughs> and no way I could get the information that these folks get because I don't have the experience to share with, uh, the people that we're interviewing. Right. Uh, then when synthesis comes, right, they understand what they're saying in a way that I just can never get either. Um, so, you know, it, it, it definitely changes the, the power dynamic. It changes the outcome um, because it's just so much better. I have a question that I'm not totally sure how to ask, <laughs> to, be, to be honest, because <laughs> um, I, 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 I understand what you're saying about sort of the system level and you know, if you're going to tackle anti-racism in design or produce anti-racist design, that there's all these kind of levels that you have to, you know, kind of like, kind of hit. And I teach primarily graphic designers. Every now and then I'll have like an industrial designer in a class, but it's mostly graphic designers. So they're dealing with apps and websites and signage and branding. Mm -hmm. And often, often the way sort of design is talked about in those contexts are, you know, you make something more inclusive by having a, you know, photos that show a diversity of, of, uh, you know, people, uh, whether that's race, age, ability, that sort of thing, or it's, um, you know, kind of being aware of cultural differences. What do colors represent for different culture? You know, what's that? Like, what language are you using? That sort of thing. And all of those are good. I don't mean to say that those are not good things, but those are also very kind of surface level. And I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about, how, you know, what, what you think anti-racist design looks like i don't mean looks like aesthetically but mm -hmm. how do you kind of see that living in the world especially for somebody like a graphic designer who's often working at a sort of higher systems level than sort of deep cultural you know entrenchment systems level do you know what i mean yeah no i, I mean i think all those things are important but the so then the next piece is where are they placed I think a lot of organizations think the diverse representation should be placed where the diversity is. And so then therefore you already see diversity really means black and brown, right? Mm. It's not, it's not even <laughs> about diversity. It's really about the segregation. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we, we need more pictures of happy black families, or we need more pictures of happy brown families uh, to put in our locations that are, that serve those populations, right? Mm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I told you, we know that we're happy. <laughs> I don't need to see a picture of that. I have family photos to prove that. The people who need to see that are the folks who don't know that that's true. Right, that's what I was gonna say, or it's <laughs> to go for the white people to see so, 
so they can feel good about it, you know, or something like that. Right. So it's like, okay, you, you know, it's, it's, it's good that you have that, but don't just put it in places where people already know that that's true. Right. How are you flooding other communities with those images? I I think your point is is spot on that. It's never just going to be imagery. It has to be a collection of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So are you, are you putting um, black businesses also in those locations, right? Um, so I think designers have to ask bigger questions. Also, you know, have to start saying no to things, right? So even though Shy by Design is, is doing well, we also say no. Right. Um, like if we don't think a project can have an anti-racist outcome, we won't touch it. If we don't think the client is necessarily, you know, uh, committed to this, we won't do it. Uh, so we'll, we'll say no. And so, you know, I think that's something that, especially big firms, I don't think they have a, a practice <laughs> of doing yet. Yeah. Yeah. But it needs to happen. Like we're not gonna, we're not gonna get change if we're just staying at the service level. Right. So even if we're a graphic design, um, focus firm, understanding that it's not just about that piece you know it's it's really easy and it's true to to say that and maybe this goes back to kind of that that earlier comment i made about how when i hear about like design for social good my immediate reaction is to roll my eyes is because there's this sort of like hubris that comes with thinking that design can solve a problem that in many ways is also caused by design like another type of design and so Mm -hmm. you can you can see it in like very obvious ways, the development of cities that are, you know, designed in a way to encourage segregation or um, I had Deanna Van Buren on the show a couple years ago, who's a, an architect and um, uh, kind of prison reform activist. Mm. And, and, you know, she talked about like sort of the Jeffersonian style of architecture that on one hand to, to some groups of people represents like, history and seriousness into other groups of people represent you know oppression and so there's like these aesthetics of buildings and the way buildings can kind of encourage uh subtly uh a type of racism or or segregation but what i'm hearing what is interesting about what i'm hearing you saying is that yeah those are all like easy to identify but there's all these other sort of subtle forms of design whether that's who has a seat at the table who is involved in the design process where the where the design is placed that are maybe less obvious that are also uh kind of contributing to these ideas which goes back to like what you said earlier where it's like if you're not being actively anti-racist uh, if your design is not actively anti-racist, then it's then it is racist. You know, I think the stuff that's, I think the architecture world has definitely been leading in terms of like identifying and calling out racism within their their process and their outcomes, and um, you know, even taking steps to say they're not going to build prisons anymore. Right, right. You know, <laughs> right. I haven't seen that come from other design. <laughs> you know, um, traditions and, and, mm-hmm. and sub subfields. So, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily easy. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I, I was very, you know, um, inspired to see that. Uh, but I, I think they also understand that it's, it's the built environment that then affects the lived environment. And so 
all of these other fields, right? The the visuals, the business development, um, uh, you know, the service, all these different subsets of design now have to go through the same thing. How have we contributed to this so that that way we can start to collectively move away from it or not just move away from it, oppose it, actively right. oppose it, um, right. which will take all of us. It, it can't just be one subset that says, you know, we're, we're taking a stand. We all have to do it in, in, in a particular way. You mentioned earlier uh, that when you started at ID, a lot of the, you know, kind of school was still really focused on business and how design can kind of serve business. And we've been talking about your work and kind of talking about a lot of these ideas, um, not always in a business context. And I'm wondering if that's how you see that applying within a sort of kind of capitalist system in a business context. Um, does that require different approaches or, or do your students kind of go back into to industry or how does that how do you kind of see that relationship within a lot of these ideas? I think, you know, ideas becoming more focused on um, social impact, to be honest, like more, lots of my colleagues, you know, have, have interests that lie beyond making <laughs> businesses more money, um, which is, which is nice. Like there's been a, uh, I think a healthy progression and evolution that idea over the past couple of years. Um, and, and now we're figuring out how to, to do that together, which I think is really awesome. Like right now, um, co-teaching a class with two other brilliant professors, Carlos Teixeira and Ruth Schmidt, um, and we're 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 working on redesigning the fine and feet kind of system mm. here in Chicago. Um, and so, Carlos has you know advanced expertise in systems design and systems thinking. Uh, Ruth is you know at the forefront of the field around behavioral design, and then I come with the anti-racist perspective. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome to see what the students are, are already coming up with. We're just in round one of prototyping. And so they're trying to figure out how to con embed concepts around sustainability, mm -hmm. equity, um, that then encourages anti-racist behavior right. and, you know, all these, all these other things, but also uh, gets the system to change so you know again not just having point solutions um so you know i think as a school we're 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 figuring out quickly now how to collaboratively move forward a, a more um, impactful agenda you know there's still pieces that say okay a business could make money off of this okay uh, we're not going to get past that right now we're in capitalism so you know that and I, that's the other thing I tell students. I don't, you know, I I don't agree that design ruined the world, but I also don't agree that yes. it'll save the world. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, we have to work within the paradigm that we're in. But how do we also use our talents to support the change that will have to come from the broader population? And so, you know, can we create features in technology or in uh, services or in objects that enable society to act more anti-racist. Um, and so that's what I push my students to, to think about and create 
yeah, are, you know, can we design for post-capitalism? I don't think so, but we can, I think we can design ways in which to help us get past capitalism. I love that. Let me ask you the last question that I used to end all of these interviews. I'm curious what you're reading right now. <laughs> I feel like I buy so many books now. Um, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, so people are just out here <laughs> writing good stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, but I feel like I keep going back to particular readings over and over. Um, so a couple great books, uh, Fatal Invention by Dorothy Roberts. It's about, um, it's called How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st mm -hmm. Century. Um, race After Technology, I always come back to that, Ruha Benjamin. Um, and then the one that I'm starting new is The Sum of Us, which is all about how racism affects all of society, not just folks of color. And I think that's a critical piece that we all have to understand. Right? As long as there's racism and inequality for people of color, white people are not going to live the lives that they could um, right. for lots of right. reasons. So, yeah, we get it worse, but that means you're not getting what you right, should right. either. <laughs> Hence the opioid epidemic, right? Like, Well, that's a good way to, to wrap, wrap this up. Uh, <laughs> All my interviews wrap up on a positive note. <laughs> Opioid epidemic. Boom. And yeah, we'll I don't know. I don't time. know what else to say now. Um, <laughs> Chris, this I think you're doing important work. I am a fan. And it was really great to kind of talk to you about all these ideas. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. This episode was recorded on February 4th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.